and what we're getting more and more in the literature is the sickness of COVID is not just about the virus itself coming in contact with a human. It, the sickness is about what the human's immune system does in response. That means one, if your D is good and your sleep is good, you'll just get the COVID. This is like every virus. You get the virus and then your immune system kills it and keeps a record and you go on and nothing bad happens to you. Or things are a little bit goofed up and let's just say everything is okay chemically in the background, but you just cared for your mom and dad who both had COVID and therefore you've been up every night for the last three weeks. <clears throat> and oh, by the way, you just have a two-year-old as well so that you have practical aspects that have cheated you of the healing parts of sleep. Good day, hello, greetings, wherever you are in this beautiful world. Thank you for joining True Hope Podcast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. True Hope Canada, if you're not familiar, is a mind and body-based supplement company that is dedicated first and foremost to promoting brain and body health through non-invasive nutritional means. For more information about us, you can visit truehopecanada.com. Today, I've got the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Starsha Gomenak to the show. Now, Dr. Gomenak received her MD from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and did a neurology residency at Massachusetts General Hospital. From 91 to 04, she practiced as a general neurologist, then moved to Texas to focus on treating neurological illness by improving sleep. She has published many articles discussing the importance of sleep, its connection to vitamin D and the microbiome. She currently divides her time between teaching individuals through virtual coaching sessions and teaching clinicians from various medical and dental fields. Her popular courses and lectures help clinicians improve their patients' health and well-being by improving their sleep. Today, we're going to be discussing her experience with neurological disorders and sleep issues. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, Dr. Gomenak. Welcome to True Hope Cast. Really appreciate your time today. How are you? What's going well? Everything is great on my side. We, uh, I'm living in Texas, and we have a beautiful spring. All the azaleas are in bloom, and thank you very much for inviting me. No, wonderful. And just as an introduction, just to kick things off, why don't you let people know who you are and what it is that you do? I am a retired neurologist, and now I am a sleep coach. Uh, there's a new industry because so many people have a hard time sleeping of helping people learn how to sleep better. And because of a series of events in my neurology practice, I actually learned about some deficiency states that are quite common now that lead to sleep problems of various kinds. So I have coaching programs. I have a workbook. It's called the Right Sleep Workbook that you can actually buy on my website and follow to try to get your sleep better. Amazing. Can you just kick what's so why do we have like more people? Why have you noticed that? Was that just a really clear, obvious pattern that you were seeing in your in your medical career? Um, it was kind of slow in occurring and it was, I have to thank my patients for being, um, demanding. So at the time that I started into sleep, which it was about 2005. So now more than 15 years ago, not much was being written about what to do about sleep disorders. Uh, we had a very set idea, fat people, males get sleep apnea. They have to wear one of those masks. And that was about it. And one of my daily headache sufferers. So I had about half of my practice treating usually fairly young, healthy females um, have very little wrong with them, except they have daily headache. 
And so they were seeing me and one of them asked me to do a sleep study after the medications that I would usually use did not work for her daily headaches. She turned out to have sleep apnea, which is not something I would have expected. She was not overweight. She did not have a fat neck. She didn't look like what we were told to look for. And most importantly, she put on a CPAP device, which was really weird because she, her head hurts so much she can't really brush her hair. So she puts on this torture mask, wears it at night, and in about three weeks, her headaches are gone. And I've been treating headache for 25 years already. So pretty much anything that will make headaches better, I'll try. And all the people with daily headache are desperate too. And in those 20 and 25 years that I'm treating daily headache, we really don't have a good answer for those patients. They get better for a while if you're lucky, but then they usually get worse again. And it had never occurred to me that their primary problem could be a sleep disorder. And because this first patient actually did have sleep apnea, but she did not have drops in oxygen. So what we had been told, the pulmonologists took responsibility for sleep apnea because they make the little machines. But in actual fact, you're going to hear me talk about the fact that the brainstem really controls what happens to this part and that we get paralyzed when we're in deep sleep. So as soon as you get paralyzed, this part can collapse. So it's really a neurology problem, at least to some degree. So I started to do hundreds of sleep studies in daily headache sufferers, and most of them did not have sleep apnea. They didn't have drops in oxygen. So they didn't fit the explanation that the pulmonologists had given us that, oh, these drops in oxygen stress out the body and then disease results from it, as though sleep apnea is the primary problem. So over a period of a couple of years, it turned out that my patients who were younger and healthier had very distinctive findings on their sleep studies. They had no rapid eye movement sleep, delayed rapid eye movement sleep, or REM rapid eye movement sleep related apnea. So they would only stop breathing in the half an hour that they actually were able to make REM sleep. And that took a while before my pulmonologist actually reported that to me. So it was not on the front page. And that's the case for a lot of sleep studies is they won't comment. If there's no apnea, then there's no comment about the fact that there's no rapid eye movement sleep or the deep sleep is abbreviated or shorter than it should be because nobody knows why. Right. Because as a patient, the first thing I would do is say, okay, I have no REM. Let's bring it back. What do you, th what do you say? And I'd say, uh, don't have a clue. Don't have a clue why. Don't have a clue of how to help you. So those results sat there with me for a long time with me questioning. Interesting. So just take a step, just take a step back. Like when you were in medical school and you, you know, surrounded by your peers and your professors and you're learning about everything to do with the body, what, what do they talk, talk about when it comes to actual sleep? Because it's obviously something that we all do, um, massively necessary, but you know, unless you go specialize in sleep apnea or, um, being a pulmonologist, like, do you actually get into the importance of sleep? why we why we sleep like how how dangerous a lack of sleep can be how a, a dangerous of too much sleep can be like is this something that gets um a lot of traction it's, a, it's an excellent question and i want you to keep in mind that i'm in medical school end of the 70s and early 80s and at that time there were no epidemics of uh sleep apnea fibromyalgia chronic fatigue irritable bowel ADD, ADHD, autism. All of those diseases have 
epidemically increase in the last 40 years, all in the same time span. So the first question is, what did we study about sleep? The first studies came out of Stanford in the 1960s, and they were done in normal young people, medical students and Stanford and uh, Stanford students. And I was growing up at the same time, uh, just south of there. So your question is a very good one, because at the time, what we had was animal studies, um, one of which is really important. If you lesion a certain place in the brainstem, the reason why we know we get paralyzed is they actually buzzed a little place, killed the nerves, and watched cats walk around while they were dreaming. So watching that happen led us to believe that, oh, we get paralyzed while we're dreaming so we don't act out our dreams. I want you to picture the fact that we can't really go inside the brain and see what's happening. What we can do is make little destructive lesions in animals, and then we can observe humans that are not sleeping well are humans that are sleeping well and sleep deprive them okay starting in the 60s that's what we've done coming up to today that is still what's done so when i go to the american academy of sleep medicine which is an amazing conference what i see are incredible experiments done on rats and mice with electrodes in their brain while they're sleeping while they're awake and they're and uh, humans that are said to be normal who are then sleep deprived, kept awake for two or three days, and then we study what happens to them. Now, the problem is that those are not my patients. My patients are people who have insomnia, who have sleep apnea for no apparent reason, because they don't have anything wrong with their throat, uh, not to say that there aren't anatomic problems that can occur, but the problem is that in a general sense, we've ignored sleep complaints of our patients because we don't really know what to do about it. So when I've got now hundreds of sleep studies that show there's no REM, what I'm doing is looking for articles that suggest why wouldn't they have any REM? And what I've got is really studies of normals. So we've come at it in a way that was based on the fact that we have very limited ways to look at this question, but your question is still a really good one. And what's happened in the last 40 years is there's become an epidemic of sleep disorders of many kinds. Most of them are not about the anatomy of the throat. Most of them are about insomnia. I wake up at 3 a.m. I can't go back to sleep. And many of the patients that I was looking at at the time had a pretty routine presentation. They're young, healthy females who just had their second kid. They can't get back to sleep again. And the kid isn't sleeping either. And because I trained in the 70s and 80s, I know it's normal for infants at about four to four to six months to start sleeping through. And none of their kids are sleeping through. This is a much bigger epidemic within the last two generations of children as well. So we're looking at something that has become epidemic in the last 40 years around the globe, not just in the U.S. or the U.K. So that would just just listening to you say that that's amazing, amazing information that would just that just kind of translates to me that we've had this significant rise in these sleep related disorders. We clearly don't know enough about sleep and we're maybe not doing the right studies and we're not looking at the right individuals, not looking at the right parameters when we're actually do, conducting these studies. We're clearly not doing that right at the moment. So like, is there a way like considering you've, you know, you've had so much experience with your patients coming in and talking to you. I mean, this, that's obviously 
that's obviously great information and great data to collect and observe and have having the feedback from your patients must be must be just wonderful information because you know they're coming to you with sim- similar similar issues and you say there's people with no REM sleep or delayed or um other issues so my question to that would be what's the type what's the best possible type of study that you think we could be doing to actually evaluate why most people have got a massively poor relationship with sleep great question again and you're you're asking your questions in the way that a sleep scientist would ask them and at, i just want to let you know that in the same time frame two other important things happened one around the early 80s medicine decided that vitamins were well known completely understood and that vitamin deficiency states didn't happen if you had a good diet before that medicine was taking full responsibility for vitamins because they are the core of our biochemistry the the second piece of this is over the same ensuing 40 years the pharmaceutical industry has begun to run medical research because our federal government which was really the only oh good guy let's say that has no nothing to gain um, monetarily has backed off so we have now changed in medicine also to devalue clinical observation and value more hundred of thousand dollar studies by that can only be afforded to be done by by a pharmaceutical company now in the meantime, I'm just practicing as a neurologist, okay? I don't have any resentment about what I do. I love what I do. I'm trying the best I can, but I'm desperate. I'm starting to be perimenopausal and starting to sleep badly for the first time in my life. And I'm noticing that every single person who comes into my office, really, now that I'm doing sleep studies on everyone, little kids with epilepsy, little kids with headaches, little kids with tics, all of them have sleep disorders. If you do a sleep study, you'll see that their sleep is not normal, even though they don't actually know that. So there's an idea developing in the back of my mind that, you know, every single one of these diseases is really a genetic disease. It's a tendency to turn the nerve cells on at an inappropriate time, or it doesn't turn on at an appropriate time. It's something about the electrical system that's out of balance because the normal repair processes that would be happening during sleep are not happening. So for the very first time in my life, your first question is, how did I learn about this? I was never taught about it in medical school. We are still not taught that sleep is the most important thing that we do. We're still not taught that if you don't sleep normally, all disease that is common right now actually flows from that. That the real miracle is not what doctors do. The miracle is that our body is self sustaining and self-repairing for 75 to 100 years that's that's miraculous now step back for a moment and say well how would i set up a study to study this i don't have a way to do that i'm just a clinician okay so one of the things that happens everything that happened to me was by accident so a gal comes in she's 18 she's perfect she has daily headache she has a sleep study that has absolutely no deep sleep and your, your original question also is, what happens if we don't sleep? But sleep deprivation of a normal person over two or three days is not the same thing as what if I fall asleep and stay asleep? So this gal sleeps for 10 hours. She sleeps for 10 hours every night. So if I say anything wrong with your sleep, she says no. 
But I say, how do you feel in the morning? Terrible. I feel awful. I'm tired. I don't feel refreshed. When I can see her sleep study and I can see that she is asleep for 10 solid hours in the sleep study center, but she does not go into deep sleep. I have a correlation there saying, well, you can sleep, but if you don't get into these phases, these particular phases, then there are all these diseases that start to show up, suggesting that there are certain phases of sleep that allow us to repair. And in those phases, we are paralyzed, which is also a really weird idea. So this gal has no deep sleep and she turns out to have a B12 deficiency. That's low enough that even I have never really been interested in vitamins. I was before medical school, but not after medical school. Even I am thinking, you know, I'm reading these weird articles about how we get paralyzed and these single cells and how they're pacemaker cells and how they fire at a certain rate. And there's this scientist dropping these little chemicals on them and making them fire faster and slower. Because I have no other answer, I'm at a single cell layer level about sleep, which is bizarre, okay? That's not the way we look at it. We look at it in, from a scientist's point of view. We would say, what about these nuclei and how do they, and when you look at the new, newest articles about how sleep happens, there are 22 arrows, which usually means one, it's really complicated. Two, am I gonna duplicate that in any way? by toying around with some medicine? No, I'm not going to. So in the background, I'm thinking of it in this naive way that's looking at neurotransmitters, that's looking at norepinephrine and epinephrine, because that's the way the scientist is looking at the single cell. So I think, wow, what if the cell that's firing all the time and never gets a break gets B12 deficient? What will happen to its metabolism? Does that mean it'll start to fire wrong? So I'm really set up in a place where I could actually think of the possibility that a deficiency state of some cellular chemical could make the cell misfire and not get paralyzed correctly. Not get paralyzed correctly so that they could actually collapse their airway or they could kick their legs, which is the other thing we'd record on those sleep studies. And at that point, I start to measure B12 levels and I've got now hundreds of people who've had sleep studies and I start to measure B12 levels and then one of my patients mentions vitamin D and that her doctor did her vitamin D was low. They gave her vitamin D and her wrist pain got better. And at the time I was not the least bit interested in vitamin D nor did I know anything about it. It's a big deal right now because of COVID. But at the time it was for me still a bone vitamin. I'm not interested in vitamin. So, but I'm drawing blood in everybody. And there was an, another really interesting observation which was I don't think 32 year olds should have any pain when they wake up. But a lot of these women with daily headache would have ankle pain or knee pain or hip pain or foot pain. And I would think, you know, when we put on that CPAP device or if I give them a sleeping pill, we're not fixing those leg movements we're measuring. And why are those legs and why are they periodic? And it turns out there's an old walking nucleus right in the same area of the brainstem where our sleep switches are, that if it's not appropriately repressed or turned off during deep sleep, we walk. So they have all, that's why it's called periodic. They walk, they have alternating movements of even just the big toe or the foot or the knee. And I'm thinking, you know, this perfect paralysis is one kind of scary when you think about the fact that we could, we could get paralyzed here and stop breathing and die. Like, why would we, why would we do that? Why would we get paralyzed? It is such a compelling thing to, that we just say, oh, we get paralyzed. And then there's no, 
well, why? And what happens if you don't get paralyzed? And what if I got, I mean, that's scary stuff. So one, it's in all animals. It's always been that way, or it appears that that's the case. This part of the brain is the same in the dinosaurs as it is in us. Why would we get paralyzed? And then if we do get paralyzed, what if we get paralyzed incorrectly? What if it's not perfect paralysis? What would result? Could it be that this pain that's in their ankles or their hips could be about that? And so I'm not, it's not that I'm interested in vitamin D. It's that I've got these other complaints that are common within this population and no explanation for it. So I start doing vitamin D levels in hundreds of people. And over a period of four months in 2009, between August and December, again, by accident, this is the end of summer into when the D level should be at its climax and then it should go down if we get D from the sun, which is all I knew. And everybody's D is low, everybody's. And I'm thinking, well, I have no idea about that, nor am I that interested. And I'm just writing a little note, take a thousand IUs of vitamin D because that's what the FDA says. And I'm looking for the B12 and the B12 is not that common. It's maybe one in every five people that are really, really sick. And then at the end of those four months, two guys come in just in the uh, end of December before Christmas break and say, hey, you know, I've been wearing this CPAP device because you told me my headaches would go away. I've been wearing it a year. My headaches didn't go away. But that note you sent me last time I was in here about the vitamin D, I went out and I bought the vitamin D. And in about three weeks, my sleep got better and my headache went away. Two guys tell me that in one week. Wow. And I thought, yeah, this is all clinical observation. Okay, so your first question, which I have to admit to you, you were the first person who's interviewed me who asked it in that way. Because this is the way medicine asks the questions. How could I set up an experiment to see what we're doing in sleep? But that is not really how medicine operates. Since the very beginning, I'm a human being. I'm waiting in my little office for people to walk in, you know, picture sheep farmers, out in Yorkshire, and I've got this tweed suit on, I wouldn't be a woman at that time, but everybody from town who either got injured or something happened to them wanders into my office. So medicine actually goes based on clinical observation. It is Parkinson's disease that you could see across the street. So medicine has begun to minimize clinical observation. However, the reality is that doctors are asked to make a user's manual for something they did not make. So completely clinical observation. Two guys come in and say that vitamin D and I'm giving them a low dose. You know, the first experience was a thousand I used, which in these two guys turns out to be their D's were higher than everybody else's. They were outside workers. They had D's in the forties, not in the thirties and the twenties. So they had a clinical observation that then prompted me to go to the scientific literature. Now here's the really sad part. I type in sleep and vitamin D and nothing comes up. Those two search words have no connection. The first article making one clinical observation is published in 2010. And, but the brain, so brain and vitamin D pops up this whole body of literature by a guy named Walter Stump, who is a neurologist and an endocrine chemist who's been publishing articles since 1979, when I entered medical school, that vitamin D has all sorts of places in the brain and many other organs in the body where it's active. And since 1979, he has put together 
And since 1982 is his first publication, putting together the fact that vitamin D is a hormone, not a vitamin. It was never a vitamin. This error is still plaguing medicine. It is not a vitamin. It does not come from our food. It is a hormone that runs other hormones so that we can change things about what we do as animals. It came from on this planet since flowering plants. I mean, it is so old and it only started with flowering plants because you have to start to adjust. As soon as you have two sexes, you have to start to adjust when you mate. That means if you're out on land and there's snow on the ground and there's no food, you'd want to have your babies when there was food available. So he has already put together a very logical construct where D affects our metabolism so we can put on weight to get through the winter when there's no food, actually schedule our, our fertility to match when the food's available, and why would we have something related to sleep? Because hibernation is really about lowering the metabolic rate and sleeping. So even humans actually sort of hibernate. They don't exactly go in a hole and stay there for six months, but they slept much longer. So this D would allow them when their D was in the 40s to sleep much longer. When it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they would sleep less and they would be more metabolically active. That's already in the literature. I stumble on an article that says exactly that. And I think, how come I don't know this? I, I can already think of hundreds of patients in my practice that have died. You know, about five years before this, somebody stood up at one of the neurology meetings and said, multiple sclerosis is a vitamin D related disorder. And there were thousands of us sitting in that room. And I don't think a light bulb went off in most of us, certainly not in me. All we did was, oh, well, that's why it doesn't happen at the equator. And it's got these two rings around the planet that where it has a higher incidence. But ultimately, that means that vitamin D has been studied in, in the relationship to immunity and autoimmunity since for a very long time. And yet it's still not being treated as a hormone. The idea that it would be connected to sleep and sleep disorders is an idea that's so logical. So what happened next was Walter and I, so I called this guy up and he's retired. So I took my phone call and I said, listen, you don't know me. I'm a neurologist. I'm in East Texas and he's in North Carolina. And I said, there's this really interesting clinical observation that all these people that I have sleep studies on that have really disordered sleep on a brainstem level have low vitamin D. And you wrote an article about these cells that no one knows about. I mean, I've been looking at them, this nucleus pontus oralis caudalis that paralyzes us. And I've been reading all these articles about that. You've written an article that show their vitamin D receptors in those cells that paralyze us. Like that's mind boggling. Has anybody written an article about vitamin D and sleep? And he says, no. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. I'm just sitting here and this. So what we did over another two years was to he using his scientific articles and my clinical observations. So that then, then there was a very simple question. If everybody has a low vitamin D, including me, is there a vitamin D blood level, not dose? All hormones are about the blood level. Is there a vitamin D blood level that would make my patients sleep better? And it's a very simple question. How's your sleep? Simon, how's your sleep today? Better. Really? Oh my God, let's send you down for a D level. So it's not like I'm setting up a scientific experiment because I'm sitting 
with patients trying to answer their issues. So it is a clinical experiment. It's not a prospective case control trial. So, but it turns out that the great majority can say, as soon as their D crosses 60 level, not dose, they start to sleep better, which what, is um, mind boggling. So what, why do you think that you'd never heard of Walter's study? Like, surely you would think that something like great that would question. be would be quite mainstream. It would be quite exciting to hear about. You know, that's yes. kind of breakthrough, yeah. especially yes. uh, the, the whole idea that vitamin yes. D is a hormone, not just a vitamin and how crucial it is and how we have yeah. receptors for it all over the place. Why do you think that you'd never heard of that study? Yeah, this is very good science. This guy's got, you know, there are other people who have done not his experiments in the direct way. So that was my question. Why would the rest of the vitamin D community not accept Walter's point of view when it was so completely logical and it actually was overarching to the fact that he showed that the same kinds of receptors are in these same locations in insects, in reptiles, in mammals, in birds. The veterinary population knows that there's a preening gland where the birds preen their feathers and the vitamin D goes into this gland. And if you have your birds inside, they get cranky and they peck each other, try to kill each other. And, it, and, and you have to give them a vitamin D so they won't be cranky. And I'm like, how can I read this in the veterinary literature and not know about it in medicine? And ultimately, here's my explanation. I don't know if it's right, but so... In the meantime, I want to trace this out to why it became so important to me. In the meantime, I'm talking to all my colleagues in my town who used to think I'm smart, and now they think I'm crazy because all I'll talk about is sleep. And I do sleep studies in everyone. And I'm completely fixated on the idea that all the chronic illness that we're seeing now, keep in mind that I'm not seeing, you know, in neurology, in 1910, I would have been seeing people with tuberculosis of the spine and paralysis syphilis, diphtheria, scarlet fever. I would have been seeing these complications of, of infectious diseases that were common. Um, so what I'm seeing now is really chronic illness that, so medicine has really overcome hundreds of things, but it's narrowed down now the things that I see in neurology. And I think most of those things can be impacted to some extent by making their sleep better so then the final question is, why aren't we treating sleep as the most important thing? Why aren't we doing that? Then I become a complete fanatic about vitamin D. And now they really think I'm nuts because the vitamin words coming out of my mouth all the time. So one of the problems is that we named it a vitamin. It's never been a vitamin. It's never been about nutrition. It's not a nutrient. Medicine decided that rickets was a nutrient related disorder. I'm going to come back and finish your question. 100 years ago, November of 1921, a guy named Alfred Hess presented to a pediatric um, meeting his findings of putting children in New York City out in the, in the sun. And his description is heart-wrenching. His first sentence says, rickets is the commonest nutrient-related disorder among infants and toddlers. And then he goes on to say that if you put the kids out in the sun, and he makes logical comments like you, you have to put them out in the sun based on the temperature and how dark their skin is and the length of time. And as the weather gets warmer, you can put more of their skin. 
but you can actually see the problems of rickets. And what he doesn't really state very clearly is these kids are all colicky babies. They don't sleep. They cry all the time. They have belly complaints, or at least that's what we think is wrong with them. And the thing that got in the literature was the x-ray, the x-ray result of the bones, because at the time we really didn't know what the cause was. Vitamin D had not been discovered. So it's a disease, it's a clinical syndrome. And the thing that got in the literature was the bone because you could show pictures of it. You keep those pictures and you can show them to your colleagues. But in the background, this is a description of all the kids who don't sleep now. They're not being tested for rickets. They all have low vitamin D. So he puts them out in the sun. He describes that there are now bulbs that exude UVB light, that actually emit UVB light, that other experiments have shown that's the frequency that makes the rickets go away. All of that is in the literature in 1921. And then in 1940s, they actually purify a chemical called D2 that was really coming from yeast growing on rat food that's being fed to rats. So there's this peculiar history, which means that these sun exposure experiments were already well-documented. And then we name it a vitamin, and then we decide vitamins aren't for doctors anymore. And then the next question would be, why is Walter's completely logical framework not accepted? And I really didn't understand that until I went to a thing called the vitamin D workshop. Keep in mind, I am very interested in the concept that I have just practiced for 30 years with these ideas sitting there in the literature, but I wasn't taught them, okay? And that means my patients have suffered because of my lack of knowledge, even though the knowledge is there, okay? Now I'm, I'm getting all wired up to actually start a new business. I've retired from neurology and my intention in the world is for this information to be spread. But my colleagues have done nothing but roll their eyes at me, okay? So now I'm in a place, it's kind of in between, I'm not in functional medicine yet, I'm not, I haven't found my tribe that will accept the word vitamin in my sentences, and I go to this thing called the vitamin D workshop, and I'm hanging out at the social things, because I want to hang out with the big dogs who I've been reading their articles for the last 10 years, and ask, why is it that you guys wouldn't go along with Walter's point of view? And one of them says to me, you know, Walter was really an asshole. He would stand up at these meetings, he'd come to the microphone, and he'd say, you guys really don't understand this the way, the way I do, and you don't really quote my literature the way you should. And none of them liked him because he was arrogant. Yeah, I can so, understand how that would be a big, big turn off. Well, gee, can you think of any other doctors who are a bit arrogant? <laughs> I mean, you know, this was me. I was about to try in the way that I've been trained to spread this literature. But my training is really about, one, giving lectures that are completely unintelligible. The more complicated the words are, the, the more complex the scientific setup, the smarter I look. But that's not what I want to accomplish, okay? So I've been trained for 30 years to write my articles in these very cryptic ways. This is, this is really how... So in the background, the other thing you have to analyze is, is medicine really about this completely open-minded, 
I'll do anything to make my patient better? No, medicine is about human beings that are primates and primates are all about status. In any tribe, yeah. any tribe you go into, it's all about status. And in medicine, we've decided that having an honorific doctor, uh, where I went to school, how big my words are. So it set me off on a path of thinking this tendency for medicine to set themselves above everyone else has led to terrible care. And what I'm doing now is a coach and we are always on an equal footing. I am one human being, you're another, we're helping each other. Now, interestingly in the background, things have changed dramatically. My daughter is saying things like, you don't have to have it accepted by your colleagues. All you need to do is make yourself a website. And I think, what? No way. And the reason why you're interviewing me is in the last 10 years, medicine hasn't noticed it yet, but the way to teach ourselves is through thought leaders who are reading the literature themselves. They don't have an MD degree. You don't have an MD degree. I don't really need one. I can actually get access to any information that an MD can get to. I can teach myself everything I need to know about all the special words that medicine uses. That means there's been such a huge shift. We've educated the lay person to such a degree that lay people are starting with, why can't I sleep? I just asked my doctor, he avoided the question, and now I'm gonna go to the internet. So yeah. several things have happened in parallel, but the most important, is your, your original question. How do we study sleep? How is medicine looking at studying it? How is science looking at it? And then the next question would be, how is the, the lay person who can't sleep looking at it? Where do they go for help? And why isn't medicine filling that in? And I'll tell you, when I'm trying to get continuing edu education credits for other doctors, currently they won't give me any C CME credits for anything having to do with vitamin D. Because not only is it scary, it is challenging medicine's place within this pecking order. Because the lay person is going to know more about it than their doctors. Certainly. I think the, um, the amount of ego wrapped around the whole idea of conventional medicine and we have this you know, tier system of you know, going to your doctor and just listening to what they say. Don't ask questions. Just, you know, you, you, kind of, you kind of go, go with the program or the protocol but i think if you were to do a lecture to um a, a thousand people in the general public and then a thousand people who are doctors and you were discussing vitamin d as a hormone and how it and how it helps you your body in a very holistic way i think the people in the general public would one be all ears and two more people would understand what you're actually talking about than a lot of the the a lot of doctors, what primarily because they're not really taught about it in school, and also, you no know, vitamins are right not now. medicines and drugs. Yeah, it's really, it's really. Fr I'm sure it's massively frustrating, and it, and it's it's a it's a really interesting dynamic. But I want to ask you about. So we've quite clearly got this global sleep chronic disease issue. Everything's rising. You know, you would think we'd be at our um, healthiest as a as a human population in, in 2022, but we're clearly not. Um, it's, there's no arguments about that and the issues that have, or the problems or the concerns that have created this health 
epidemic are without question most likely not biological evolution but our societal evolution things happening in our environment things that happen in our society and our communities that are causing these sleep issues rather than our biology massively changing you know our evolution changing so much so quickly it doesn't really work like that so what can you can you maybe hit a few of the key points like what are the i mean there's obviously loads of them so tell us a few of the in your clinical experience Okay, so, and this leads us into what happened next. So, and this is what's going to happen in the public sphere. So, my viewpoint as a physician was, okay, we get this vitamin D right, we find the blood level, and everything's going to be fixed. Um, And what we had at the time, what I had, what you have still is, that the reasons why we are failing and we're so fat is because we do it wrong. We don't sleep right, we don't exercise, we don't eat right, there are toxins in our environment. I was still in the toxins affecting the brainstem point of view, okay? That was what medicine was teaching at the time. The idea could be a deficiency state was completely erased from my brain as a possibility. So now I'm thinking of a possibility of a deficiency state. Two years later, two years after we start giving vitamin D, my patients start to come back. Again, another clinical observation. And what this clinical observation is going to lead to, which is really important, is that vitamin D runs the microbiome. The vitamin D that we make on our skin goes into the intestines and it feeds the bacteria. That means it determines which species of bacteria live inside you. So the similar parallel epidemic of IBS and the wrong microbiome. And since I'm not a GI doctor, I'm not reading the literature about the microbiome, but I'm taking probiotics. My patients are paying, you know, we're trading recipes for probiotics. So I'm kind of aware that the microbiome isn't right, but I've been taught the same toxin, you know, we're doing it wrong thing. And I think, you know, Walter's framework of understanding this suggests that vitamin D probably played a role in why the microbiome went bad and why IBS started at the same time and why autoimmunity is going sky high at the same time. But the vitamin D did not make the IBS go away, made the sleep better. But at the end of two years, the three things that were still around, one, they didn't lose weight, which is really important. Exercising more, feeling better, walking every day, didn't lose weight. The second was by now they're starting to have more and more body pain something else is happening like keeping the d high has caused another thing to occur very important and the third thing is the ibs symptoms didn't go away so even though d might have been one of the cofactors and the first article about that that really documents my hypothesis and walter's hypothesis came in 2020 so it just actually is a relatively new observation that actually scientifically looked at if you drop the vitamin D or if you increase it, does that change the population that lives in the belly and that in humans? And that study's now been done. So in the background, my patients are coming back saying, you know, I came to you for daily headaches, but now I have joint pain. I'm going to see the rheumatologist. They're telling me I have rheumatoid arthritis and I'm kind of feeling kind of paranoid. Like I'm doing something kind of out there. You know, I, I just published that 60 to 80 is the right place for better sleep. My concept should be that when you sleep better, you don't get any diseases. So this is clearly not the whole story. And then a couple of gals come in within a month of each other saying they have burning in their hands and feet, which is extremely rare. My neurology subspecialty is neuropathy. And that is not something that walks in the door often, especially hands and feet. 
and they don't have diabetes and they're already on B12, which are the two things that have been blamed for that presentation. So I don't have an answer for them, but I'm really suspicious in the background that some other deficiency state has crept up. If we're looking through a lens of sleep, sleep is about repair. What do we need to repair? We need the tools to repair. So vitamin D is one of the tools that is needed to actually get the cell into a repair phase, but every repair is latched onto other vitamins. Minerals, what, why do we need those? Why are those vital things because we use them to make repairs. So it's feeling like there's a secondary deficiency state that's coming along. And right at that time, one of my patients brings me a book about pantothenic acid, which is also a vitamin. And at this point, I'm like, oh no, another vitamin. They're bringing those essential oils in, they're bringing those crystals in here, no thanks. But it turns out that this book she brought me at that time when I was desperate and didn't know what to do, actually clarified a path. And I'm gonna give it to you as a summary now. Ultimately, when you're D deficient, that's not the only problem. And having a D that's low is not what makes people sick. It was always meant to go up and down. But if it's low enough for long enough that you lose the normal four phyla, then you lose all eight B vitamins and a bunch of other things. So in the final analysis, the B vitamins do not come from the food. They never came from the food. They are being made by the bacteria that live inside us. And that those eight cofactors were actually in the 1920s and 30s, first described as bacterial growth factors. So the first place that we started to do the biochemical pathways that we know as the citric acid cycle or how to make DNA, those first studies were about growing bacteria in Petri dishes and the eight chemicals, if you had never thought about this, why do we have vitamin A? And then we have eight things called B. Like, what's up with that? And then we have C and D. Like, why would they call eight chemicals B? It's because they all came out of this liquid preparation of yeast plus bacteria that grow from the air and the water. And they make these growth factors that help each other grow. So they have, we have four phyla. They trade these B vitamins. They don't even know we exist. They, they live in their own little world. But our biology came second. The bugs have been here for billions of years. We've been here for millions of years. That means that the <clears throat> intestinal microbiome actually makes a chemical called pantothenic acid that must be used with the vitamin D to make acetylcholine or acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is one of the major neurotransmitters that allows us to go to sleep, to get paralyzed correctly in sleep, and to concentrate, be distracted, and come right back again during the day. It runs our daily level of concentration and alertness and our ability to sleep at night. And in summary, your D goes low for long enough, you lose your microbiome, and now you are actually in an acetylcholine deficiency state. That means if you look at what the parasympathetic and the sympathetic sides of the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic is run by epinephrine and norepinephrine. Parasympathetic is run by acetylcholine. That means you are constantly in a fight-flight state, not because the world is that stressful, not to say that it's not, but because you are lacking in the actual juice that we use to run the rest and digest side. Wow, what an incredible summary. Really appreciate that. That's very, very interesting. In regards to the actual um, supplementations that you might recommend, because there's obviously so many different supplements 
on on the shelves in different markets. I mean, you can go to Walmart and they've got loads and loads of supplements. And you know, not every company puts in the research, puts in the quality control into their product. So, can you talk about the actual um, supplement forms? I mean, vitamin D, the form that you would be recommending would be quite important. Um, but for the other the other vitamins that you might be recommending quite commonly in your practice as well. Um, let me give a little history there, too. I started into this path through the lens of sleep. So I have a parameter that you can actually feel. Is it better or not? It is my belief that if you're going to use supplements, you better have something that you're actually trying to fix and that you better follow whether or not it's better or worse. Because what I got to see was if you run your vitamin D too high, your sleep falls apart. If you use these vitamins incorrectly, your sleep gets worse. All the same physical ailments you had before can come rushing back if you do this incorrectly. So that means one, these chemicals are not extra and that you can't play around with them without being attentive to what you're doing. So I am, it's not that I'm against supplementation, it's that we have, every time we find out a chemical and we think we know the pathway, or even if we decide that UVB light is the right thing to make D, humans tend to want to simplify things and say, okay, well, let's just make a UVB light and I'll just sit under that bulb. What we miss in the background is that there are many, many other wavelengths of energy that are affecting your body and you've taken one wavelength. It doesn't have the same effect. If you take one chemical and you give it a, as a pharmaceutical, you don't get the same effect that our bodies were really meant to be in a homeostatic mid-range and that we didn't have any supplements to get there. It's not that antibiotics are bad. Antibiotics were actually stolen from the bacteria. We didn't make them up. The bacteria make them. That means when you get your microbiome back, you have this cloud of antiviral, antifungal, and antibiotic chemicals that are being made by your own viruses, bacteria, and fungus that protect you, keep you in balance. So at the end point, the question is, should we be supplementing aggressively with things that we don't know about in a group of things? So you have to be careful of what you're doing. This is why I have a workbook. This is why I have a website, okay? Bad things also resulted from giving B50, which is one of the things that I gave. So there's a whole story about what happened with that that led to this knowledge about acetylcholine. The other important thing to remember is I'm taking care of people who are not interested in supplements. This is regular allopathic medicine. They're coming to see a neurologist. They embrace routine medicine. That means I'm trying to convince somebody who's already like only 32, but is on four meds already, which I thought was normal until I got into this, to take four additional pills or maybe eight pills. If I have them take three Ds and a blah, blah, you know, I'm, I have to convince them that the extra expense and the extra four to eight pills is worth the trouble. That means I'm not interested in high priced, better vitamins. I'm doing all this primary research at Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, wherever, and trying to get them, and I'm not making up my own branded vitamins. I don't believe in that. I want my patients to be sure that I am not monetarily gaining from their vitamin D that they buy from me, okay? I have some really important things I wanna see happen to their life 
So I don't want them to think that I have a basis for gaining money from them. So I'm doing this with routine supplements and it works great. What's now, the... does that mean that... Sorry, yeah, quick question there. What's the recovery time for somebody who you do see come in who have got has got low vitamin d and they've had it for a long time um the, the low pentathenic acid they're not producing enough acetylcholine and it's affecting their microbiome the whole thing's affected their microbiome significantly and they do come and see you they get on a protocol like what's the recovery time like how does that i mean i know that the microbiome is quite remarkable in, in its ability to change quickly and change to different environments and you know we obviously know that the effect that antibiotics have on it and depending on your post routine you know you could maybe take a couple of years to get your microbiome back together but you know depending on what you do it could be shorter than that well in your experience how how quickly do people recover and you know hopefully they think they're being very conscious about what they're taking they're taking it every day they're taking it very seriously and then they are you know how is their sleep changing is it getting better is it getting worse you know like that's obviously very important information they need to be aware of that what's the recovery time on uh, on that like de initial deficiency state good, good question okay so the first answer is those bugs remember the bugs that we're trying to get back they've been here for billions of years and they don't know we exist and they're not that picky what was missing was that the d by itself was not the whole story there were still survivors of those four phyla we're supposed to have, but they have piles of bad poop bacteria that don't require D in between. And remember that I told you that those four phyla are symbiotic. So one makes riboflavin and another one makes thiamine and they trade. So what was missing is I'm flooding the GI tract with D, but I'm not giving Bs. So it turns out when you give B50, which is 50 milligrams of each, if you give large dose, all eight, that's what they wanted. So it really is quite simple to bring the normal microbiome back. D over 40, a blood level of D over 40 plus B50 for most people brings the bugs back in three months. And when they start to be producing the normal amount of those eight chemicals, you better take away that supplement or you will experience what it's like to have too much. And it feels just the same as too much and too little, okay? Now, I mean, we don't have time to go over that, but your next question, which is a good one is, one, okay, you've brought back the microbiome. How does that change my life as the person who entered this program, okay? We've said all these things about it takes all this special work to bring the microbiome back because they really didn't have the key. The key is, they make all these eight Bs and they want those eight Bs and you have to give them that. It's, you have to give them the growth factors they require in this little bee soup, but they come back in three months. That's not hard. The next piece is a little, is much more difficult to understand, which is if I have diagnosed celiac disease, I don't have just the wrong microbiome. I have the wrong microbiome for years and I don't sleep for years and my immune system has been affected on multiple levels by both D deficiency and these Bs and multiple other hormonal things. For instance, coenzyme A, which is, needs B5, makes cortisol. That means when I lose my B5 from my microbiome, not only do I not have this acetylcholine, but I don't have cortisol. 
So there is a multi-layered effect on the immune system. So the second piece that you're, it's a very good question, is the length of time it takes you to fix this is directly related to how sick you've been for how long. And the key is that the repair is always sleep. If the person never sleeps, doesn't matter, their microbiome can be back. If they're missing neurotransmitters that are not being given by the bugs or by the vitamin D, like they're missing epinephrine, they're missing norepinephrine, they're missing glycine, they're missing GABA, their sleep never gets better, they don't get better. So I look at these supplements in a very different way because I don't think that it's vitamins that makes the sleep better. I think it's the neurotransmitters that make the sleep better. And in actual fact, the vitamin protocol has as its primary player, the acetylcholine. And there are many daytime diseases that have been linked to it too. And it's also linked to autoimmune disease. But ultimately the key to getting anyone better is to say anything that makes you sleep better, including your doctor's sleeping pill, CBD, THC, Benadryl, whatever you can get your hands on that makes your personal unique sleep better is what your brain has been missing. That means it's a much bigger question. So your question is a real good one. I can give you two examples of the edges, like what's the fastest and what's the slowest. Okay. Is that interesting to you? Yes, certainly. Okay. So the fastest and easiest, really the fastest and easiest is to prevent this disease. That's by reversing this blanket recommendation that no human should be out in the sun. That is a big, big mistake. Okay. So you can say, I don't think I should burn the skin of my child, but still say, but it's important for your child to be outside as much as possible, but not burn their skin. And we've moved over this last 40 years from don't sunburn to the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that the sun not touch the skin of a kid until they're six months old. That's insane. Every animal on this planet lives outside unless they live in the ground like a mole. That means our biology was related to that. And there's all this other literature about infrared light and all these other things. So one, we could prevent it infinitely easier than treat the disease that it has resulted. And all you have to do is look at the incidence of infertility of early delivery and neonatal care. My grandbaby was born at 27 weeks. Why is he perfect? Because we've gotten so incredibly good at keeping infants alive when they're born way too early. So that's one way to look at it. Now, the real question is now that I'm on this podcast or this webinar and I don't sleep well, what's the shortest period of time? A kid who's always been a lifeguard, who's been outside, who's never had a problem, not tired, eat, learns easily, not distractible, who gets their first job at the Target warehouse and now has spent the last two summers working inside instead of working outside, who comes to see me for daily headache. Now they're into the third, you know, this would be their third summer. It's May. They've had a headache since March. So there's an annual cycle to this. Their sleep has been terrible for the last two months. Usually in teenagers, it's can't fall asleep. That kid is relatively easy to fix. You get the D back, you get the bugs back. That person has not been existing as a human in a deficiency state for very long. And the brain knows exactly what to do. You give it the raw materials and boom, it'll just, wow, this is great, okay? 
On the other hand, you have a, let's even say a young person. These are the people that build my practice, 35 years old, one pregnancy. That pregnancy results in a kid who's got an autoimmune disease, like within the first two years. She's got 18 diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, endometriosis, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis. And she's on, you know, 12 pills plus injections. And she's 100 pounds overweight. That gal went up to 30,000 IUs a day of D for three or four years. So all of our recommendations about dosing are based in false assumptions. Fat people, this is a fat soluble vitamin. No, it's like testosterone. Would I give a fat man more testosterone because he's fat? Testosterone is fatty also, it's made from cholesterol. Fat soluble vitamin, is, it's, it's made our dogma of treating people to be very, very wrong. She needed 30,000 IUs because every single cell in her body has got holes like Swiss cheese where the vitamin D has not been used. And her D level was like 10. But if you keep following those people over time, even if they don't lose weight, and the frustrating thing for them, and the fascinating thing is the body doesn't start to lose weight until most things are fixed. It does that last. So she's still 180, 70 pounds overweight. And now in the third or fourth year, her D level's way too high. And she's still taking exactly the same. We've been doing this for years. Now it drops pretty abruptly. And now she's down to 15,000. That means if you keep the level the same in the blood, that means she's using 15,000 IUs a day. And in actual fact, the way it should be pictured is, I take the vitamin D, whether it's on the skin or taken in, Every single cell that needs it goes, whoa, awesome, give me that. And it sucks it all up. And then the leftovers are what we measure in the blood. And it doesn't have anything to do with what's happening in the brain compartment. That means the leftovers is the homeostatic leftover. That means if it goes down and it stays down, it's not going into her fat. She has hundreds of thousands of repairs that it's being used to repair that means one, I still have to give her sleeping pills. She's still not exactly right for another six or seven years. Then she's, you know, once we were using all these things to try to get her sleep better, then her diseases start to fall off. So it's actually a really different, what you'll see when you look at the vitamin D literature is every single author enters the vitamin D arena through a certain lens. And there's a guy who's writing really, really important stuff who's entering it through dermatology. And then the next person is entering it through chemistry of calcium metabolism. And then the next person is entering it through T cells. I'm entering it through sleep. That means sleep is still the most important thing. D is a player, but so is A. Vitamin A is a, is a cofactor that sits with D. Nobody talks about that online, but we know that the receptor has two things that have to sit on the vitamin D receptor, there's another one that has to be with it next door when certain things happen. So it's a huge topic and every single author, including me, has a belief system. Those belief systems help us direct our attention, but they have blinders, all of them do, yeah. including mine. So it's complex, your question is a good one, but sometimes it's not gonna take her 30 years to get better, it's gonna take her two or three or four. And the reason why I look at it the way I do and I give a workbook is I want the person to understand that the vitamins are not the answer. Sleep is the answer. Vitamins are some of the tools, but sleep is really the key. 
in this significant career that you've had in regards to the complete switch from conventional training, conventional practice, and then what I also think is amazing and remarkable, Stasha, is that you, you've, you've clearly had this big change because you listen to your patients and you've been observant. And, you know, so many practitioners, so many doctors practice their whole lives and don't, don't engage in that skill set whatsoever and don't listen and don't learn from that from their patients which is you know it's quite criminal but you've obviously not gone down that route you've had this big change in regards to your practice and your belief systems and you've challenged them and i think that's really remarkable and courageous and you've come out the other end with this wonderful practice and this you know much more functional um holistic approach to healing and you know obviously sleep so incredibly valuable how has that massive transition through your life and career affect, like affected you personally through from what you're learning about vitamin D, what you're learning about other, other necessary vitamins and how the microbiome plays into all of that. I'm, I'm assuming you didn't learn about the microbiome in the 1970s, but you obviously had to you know l- learn and brush up on these topics. How, how has that affected you personally in your day to day, like how you eat, how you supplement, how much you stay outside. And I think what you said about the whole sunscreen covering up, not going outside, I'm super, super skeptical about like why we're being told those types of things, because obviously it makes absolutely no sense if you know anything about human evolution and where we came from, because it wasn't it certainly wasn't from apartment buildings and being inside offices. So that's a whole new topic. That's a whole new podcast. But tell us about how this your career and the change of it all has affected you personally in your day-to-day thank you for that question simon you're asking really good questions um the first is that most most of the time and i want to just comment that medicine has moved in the last 30 years into a state where even it's very difficult to be a doctor now and i really do feel that the people who stay in medicine are extremely committed that their patients should do well their underlying intent is good. Otherwise, they would have left medicine. Um, and they're being asked to, to have that intention within a framework of an insurance company that really cares about um, things like percentage percentages of, you know, insurance is really about how likely is the ship about to come back from India with um, with a full cargo, it's it's betting, it's like legalized gambling. Insurance companies have nothing to do with caregiving. So if an insurance company that's focused on actuarial tables is running how I care for a human being, that's crazy. That's just not going to work. And I, when I left medicine, it was partly because they started with saying you can't use that drug because it's too expensive. Then they were using you can't give that drug because I say so, and I'm like sorry, you don't, you don't read the literature. You don't, you don't have the ability. So medicine in its essence is a human being taking the hand of another human being and helping them through a difficult time. They may cure, they may not. The thing that we all want and the, and the thing that's also been important for me is the only thing that is valuable for a doctor is being sick. When we're sick and somebody has to take care of us, or somebody misses a diagnosis and bad, bad things happen to us, that's when we really understand what do I need as a human being from this other person who's my caregiver. 
And, and now I spend a lot of time thinking about how we should teach me in medical school because you now I'm a patient much more of the time. I go in my cataract surgery, I go in my mother-in-law to see a cardiologist and I sit and I analyze what does my mother-in-law want because she'll tell me after we leave, what do I want as a patient? So now that I'm, I, you know, I have this thing where I'm getting injections in my eyeball. I mean, that's scary enough just to talk about it. And then I'm in the office and I'm seeing how the people are interacting with me. So you'll see this throughout medicine that most of the time, the books that are written by a surgeon or by a neurologist or a doctor after they've been a patient are really where they analyze, what do I want? So they still swing back around this arrogance. I still slip into arrogance. I still slip into, but I think I have the answer. But what I found is if I keep an open mind, every single client that I have as a single coaching patient or every person that I interact with ends up teaching me stuff. And if I keep an open mind about it, it means that I can be a conduit to give that information to somebody else and go, oh, so-and-so just did this. You know, I'm still learning things that actually fit into this program in a fascinating way. I just talked to one of my patients who lives in Romania. She's a brilliant arch, you know, brilliant architect. She's been sick her whole life. She had one pregnancy and just fell apart. She's been doing my program and we just discovered she started to iron supplement and immediately her requirement for B5 went down to like one tenth and her sleep and her what she felt like during the day. So I'm pulling out these metabolic pathways and doing a search about does acetylcholine have any place along its pathway where iron is a cofactor? Yes, it turns out an enzyme that I knew nothing about. So that's fascinating because all of us who try to take out single things, and even if I say, oh, the bugs are pretty easy, that's not gonna be completely true. I'm gonna do D and B50 in some people, and you know, once we get 85% of them to be better, there's going to be one outlier that has something else, some other thing that we don't know yet. So it's affecting me personally because now I'm curious about everything. Um, I'm, I'm also willing to take part in stuff. There's a guy named James Nestor who just wrote a book called Breath that all the dentists, so the dentists are the ones that started to take my stuff off the internet. So I just hung out that since 2016, I've been hanging out with sleep dentists and they taught me so much about oral anatomy, about the nervous system of the mouth, the face, all these things that I'm supposed to know as a neurologist. No, they taught me all sorts of other things. And I would, I would be sitting in the lectures that they would give because I was giving a lecture and go, Oh my God, they're right about that. That's fascinating. That means that now I interact with oral myofunctional therapists. Well, they would be treated like, they're like the lesser, oh, you know, they're professionals, but, you know, most of the time they're females and they're not, you know, they're not in my cast. So what the dentists have taught me and every single one of the, you know, the oral hygienists who know more than most doctors about the makeup of the mouth and the face of children and what is that everybody has something important to contribute. And this idea, so it's much more important to me, this caste system that humans have no matter where they are on the planet is always in the background. Because we are primates, we're not gonna lose that. 
dogs have it, chickens, we do, you know, pecking order. Why do we have these? Because every animal that exists is a tribal sense. We're always, that doesn't mean we can't be aware of it. That we can be aware that we think that way, that we think, oh, this person is only a dentist. Because the dentists are constantly saying, well, as soon as you teach me about this, when I try to talk to my referring physicians, what they're going to say to me is you're only a dentist. Like, how can that be? These are people who know just as much about this one part of the body. So ultimately, it's led for a much more satisfying life for me because I don't feel as isolated because keeping this arrogance and this feeling of I'm on a certain place, when I'm especially with a patient, it isolates me. I don't notice that. I, I don't realize it at the time. But all of us have been slapped in the face by COVID, the fact that we need other humans around us all the time. And that the arrogance of medicine isolates us and means that we do not really play the role that the patient wants because they'll be willing to, they're okay with, I don't know everything. When I do my question and answer sections, I say, you know, I really don't know why you're not sleeping. Yeah. What I, I think, do know yeah. is what's helped other people. Certainly. It's um, being able to humanize the experience between a doctor and a patient, um, I think is a really big step forward in regards to being able to actually actively listen to what somebody is saying and how is somebody saying it, being able to look at body language. You know, we do that with our like friends and our good friends, you know, we're actually like having a conversation with, we know when they say that they're, oh, they're, you know, how are you feeling today? I'm okay. We know when that's not genuine because of, you know, we're, we're, we're humanizing the experience. We're looking at their face where, you know, we can feel it. And it can be very difficult for doctors, I'm sure, when they're seeing um, so many sick people, they're seeing the same people coming in all the time who are maybe not getting better and not taking on recommendations or not, not taking medications or whatever it might be. And I think that egotistical side of medicine is valuable in regards to we need those type of driven individuals who are confident, who do want to learn and do their best, but that obviously it slips into um, as you said, like you know, you've got the blinders up at some point and, you know, the egotistical mindset of, you know, I've got my core beliefs, I've got my belief systems and I'm going to defend them if they get challenged and I'm going to attack ones that, you know, I might not see to be, you know, in, uh, in parallel to mine. So, yeah, it's a very interesting dance, but there are lots of practitioners and it's quite interesting. We've had so many doctors on the show and their journey from strict conventional one-way protocol medicine into a bit more of an alternative mindset it's quite interesting that the, the, the groups of individuals that do that it's always most likely nine times out of ten a individual of a particular age it's very rare that you get like a 25 year old doctor with this type of mindset because obviously it takes the experience of maybe working within the system working with those insurance companies working with the restrictions that come with being a medical doctor, especially in America. Um, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not, a, it's not an easy dance. And, um, you know, I don't envy, envy those individuals, but there are just amazing people that do come out of it. Just going to finish up. I just want to ask about your blog post that I read. It was titled why right sleep may improve out, improve the outcome of coronavirus. Um, it's a really good read. I'm going to make sure it's um, in the, show notes so people can get a link to that and read that but can you give a very brief 
introduction about like um what the links are between good quality sleep and their um immunological capabilities Thanks for introducing that. And Simon, you really are very insightful in the way you really do have to get to a certain age within your practice, because when you're in your first parts, you're reading books, you're really, you went to medical school, you paid all this money to have access to the library, really. And, and so you really do have to get to a certain place where you realize what I was taught that was the truth is no longer the truth. Well, then what's the truth, you know? Did they just make that shit up? Yeah. I mean, we, you, I remember very clearly when the pulmonologist said to me, well, gee, your patients don't have apnea, but they don't have any REM sleep. And I was like, well, that's a sleep disorder. Why isn't that on the front page? And where did these guys come up with this idea that it was fat elderly males that have sleep apnea? Did they just make that up? Yeah. They just made it up. I mean, they did the best they could, but all of this stuff we're talking about is a human being making up a story about something, okay? That means this concept, as we get older, as older individuals, we begin to realize that these things are made up. And if they're written down, then us old people think, oh, it must be the truth. Now it's on the internet, okay? Everything's transitioned. Now, in the background about COVID, what we have are these observations that if you have low vitamin D, you'll have a worse outcome. If you have darker skin, you'll have, if you're obese, if you have chronic illness, you'll have a worse outcome. All of those are also the same settings of people who have low vitamin D. I mean, they, so the, that's already been in the literature. Now, the, the change in the way to look at COVID is if you don't have any of those factors and you've lived outdoors, and your immune system is therefore completely normal, then you'll see COVID, you'll maybe get a little cold and that'll be it. So, it, and what we're getting more and more in the literature is the sickness of COVID is not just about the virus itself coming in contact with a human. It, the sickness is about what the human's immune system does in response. That means one, if your D is good and your sleep is good, you'll just get the COVID, this is like every virus. You get the virus and then your immune system kills it and keeps a record and you go on and nothing bad happens to you. Or things are a little bit goofed up and let's just say everything is okay chemically in the background, but you just cared for your mom and dad who both had COVID and therefore you've been up every night for the last three weeks. <clears throat> and oh, by the way, you just have a two-year-old as well so that you have practical aspects that have cheated you of the healing parts of sleep even though your chemistry and the way your immune system is functioning is normal, you'll have a little bit more of a bad outcome from COVID. It won't be terrible, but it'll be longer and it'll be, you know, body will be weaker. We kind of understand that concept. And then, then the next one is who's going to die of COVID? Well, the person who has what they're now talking about, this storm effect of the immune system going completely nuts and releasing all these chemicals. That's a person who has one, no reserve, two, an ab really abnormal immune system. In the background, our immune system was very carefully designed to never attack ourselves, never. That means for you to get to the point where it does attack yourself and just does a mistaken thing that secretes chemicals that kills you, that's a very screwed up system. And then ultimately there's gonna be this 
I hope I'm answering your question, but there's going to be this other thing that's going to happen that we're just starting to see, which is when we have a whole population of children who are looking like normal humans, but have lived their whole life without an organ of the body, the GI tract, the microbiome, therefore their immune system is not normal since the beginning because they've been told they can't go outside, therefore their D is low, their mom's D was low, they are not operating with a normal immune system. That means even if they say kids don't have the same infection, what you're going to see is that prompting of the viral infection is going to cause an autoimmune disease to be found because their immune system is not normal. That's why you're going to see all these autoimmune diseases like diabetes, type 1 diabetes occurring after COVID infection. For the first time, we have national and global records of the timing of an infection and then the autoimmune disease is going to happen it's not like that wasn't already known i mean we know that there is a is a link between viral infection and autoimmunity in young kids we also know that the immunizations that we gave to my generation the generation before me and after me worked great but they were given to human beings who had a normal physiology. If you take a whole population and you take away their microbiome, we know so much about how that affects the immunity that you can't really blame the anti-vaxxers. The anti-vaxxers just saw their kid change and become autistic after a vaccination in age three. They're not wrong. You have to be able to hold two belief systems at the same time. This population of children we're injecting these vaccines into are not the same human beings as we had 40 years ago. That means we can change their microbiome, get it back to normal, get their D into a normal range before we give them the immunization. Yeah, I'd love to get you back onto the show to discuss um, your experience in regards to the massive increase in so many different diseases childhood and adulthood um that would be amazing if we could get back back on there but i love i just want to finish up there yeah it's a huge topic it's fascinating the, the history that goes into into something like that and the you know the graphs and the and the correlations are kind of unmissable at this point but um we're going to finish up there how can people connect with you stasha my website is drgomenak, no period, drgomenak.com. If you put in something like gomenak, like gomaflagy and vitamin D, my website will pop right up. Um, I have lots of free information. I have lots of webinars, podcasts, written information, all the information about the why to do this. I personally feel like the why is really important. If you want to know the how, then you actually buy the workbook. The workbook is designed to be your personal assistant. It takes you through in a very directive way. This is what you do. This is when you get your level. This is how you do it in Great Britain. This is how you do it in the U.S. Why it's the D level have to be done in a certain way is on the website. The how to get it done is in the workbook. And it also has the second half is all about journaling what it is you observed about your body at a certain phase with this certain amount of vitamins because it turns out there's a timeline that's pretty complex about how to get better well that's amazing and i'll make sure that 
that information is easily um, clickable for our listeners. But I want to thank you very much again. I think this is a 60 second episode of True Hope Cast and probably the most enlightening for me. So, again, I really want to thank you for your time and your um, your wonderful words today. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for inviting me. I'd love to come back. Perfect. Yeah, we'll get you back on the show. I promise you that. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. This is True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. Again, we'll make sure that everything that you need to connect with um, Starship will be in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. If you're listening on iTunes, please write a little bit of a review. That would be wonderful. Very much helps. But uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. <laughs>